HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com Hi and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And you know, it seems like people are always inventing and finding ways and things to to help women spend less time in the kitchen, to make our lives a lot easier. Laura Shapiro documented a lot of this in her book, Something from the Oven, and and it kind of laughably, it, it ended up being a way for us to spend a lot more money, and um you all know how many of you reach for the cake mix or the boxed mac and cheese when it's lunchtime or pop that microwave bag in, of popcorn in the, in the microwave. You know, I had somebody ask me one time, how do you make popcorn if you don't put it in a microwave bag? And I thought, oh boy, this is, this is a, a sad sign of the times. And today I have with me someone who has quite strong opinions about this. He is Ken Albala, and Ken is a professor of history at the University of the Pacific at Stock- in Stockton, California, where he teaches courses on the Renaissance and Reformation, food history, and the history of medicine. He is a food historian. He's written several books, including Eating Right in the Renaissance, talking, telling us all about the humors, and Food in Early Modern Europe, Beans, a History, and Pancake for the Edible Series, and he's co-editor of the journal Food, Culture, and Society. He also gave a, one of the, um, the TEDx lectures, the TED lectures on why we don't cook anymore, uh, which 
piqued my interest, and it was a real tie-in to his uh, recent book, The Lost Art of Real Cooking, Rediscovering the Pleasures of Traditional Food, One Recipe at a Time, which he wrote with Rosanna Nafziger. And in that book, a great little book, it even looks old-fashioned, kind of, he implores us to take back the kitchen. Uh, so I'm very pleased to welcome, by phone from Stockton, California, Ken Albala. Ken, are you with us? Yes, good morning. Hi. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. I, I love that little book, and I loved your lecture on why we don't cook anymore. But talking about the book first, what do you, when you say the lost art of real cooking, tell us, what do you mean by real cooking? Well, I mean not using shortcuts, not using all the so-called convenience foods that you just alluded to. I think your popcorn example is a perfect one because (laughs) popcorn to make from a bag is absolutely simple. You put it in a pot, you add some oil, it pops, you add salt, that's it. Probably faster than putting it in the microwave, too. (laughs) Yeah, putting it in the microwave takes the same amount of time, and yes, you have to clean the pot. But I think the microwave popcorn has all sorts of nasty stuff to help it stay on the shelf and flavor additives and things that really ultimately prevent you from enjoying popcorn as it's supposed to taste. And I think our our taste buds have kind of gotten blown out or jaded because we have so much of this artificial flavoring or even even what so-called natural flavoring comes from chemicals, ultimately, that we have lost the ability to taste real food. And I think it's not a wonder, you know, it's that people don't really appreciate fresh vegetables or fruits or things like that, not only because they've been shipped from halfway around the world, but because they're, um, they're competing against industrial food. And it's really, at this point, a losing battle. <laughs> and yeah. so my, my whole take in the cookbook is that Convenience foods are really not very convenient. I mean, in terms of time, certainly not in terms of money. Um, you know, to make things from scratch is always much cheaper. But I think ultimately, from a gastronomic point of view, our our sensibilities are being dulled by this barrage of flavor additives that are meant to get us to, you know, go back and buy it again or to eat more than we normally do. And I, I don't know if there's a direct causal connection to the whole obesity ec- epidemic and all the diabetes and all the health problems we're having. But, I mean, just just from a purely uh, gastronomic point of view, real food tastes better, and it's probably better for you. But the the point of the cookbook really is that it's fun to do and that people have kind of been de-skilled by the industry. Ah, that's uh, what I wanted. Yes. I wanted to bring up that de-skilled. De-skilled. Talk about that. That's interesting. Talk about that. Sure. Well, I think, you know, it's very clear that – to sell a bag of tater tots makes more money for the industry than selling a potato. So the more they so-called value add onto the product, the more they can process it, the higher they can, the more they can charge for it. And it's no wonder that when it goes into the shelves and children see it and it's all advertised, they want the tater tot, right? And, it, right. and it does taste good. I'm not denying that, it, that it's, you know, it's a, a palatable product. But in the end, what you're paying for that is a lot more than if you actually just took a potato, shredded it on a grater, molded it into little blobs, and actually fried them. And it's probably something that you're not likely to do 
often because frying, you know, you have to fill a whole pot with oil, but it's not really difficult, but it's, it's expensive and to, to buy the oil, and ultimately you're going to be eating less of that kind of food and more of just you're going to be baking the potato or doing something much more simple or boiling it mm-hmm. um, in a way that I think really does impinge upon our health and our ability to taste food and the environmental impact of all that, you know, industrial processing. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a losing situation, and ultimately people just don't know how to do those simple things anymore. So that was really the, the goal of the cookbook, um, was just to get people back into the kitchen and relearn some absolutely basic things, which are really not, I mean, admittedly, there's some, some difficult things in there, there's some dangerous things, and in fact, in the sequel, we're going a little bit further <laughs> to, um, to, on the side of difficult and dangerous and unplugged. Well, there's, there's a fair amount of humor in the book, too, which I like, because you, I mean, <laughs> you, you really, you do, I mean, you do lay it out in, in terms of, you know, this, you've got to really give yourself over to to wanting to kind of take back some of these old-fashioned methods and, you know, making pickles and olives and, and things. And, would, you know, not everyone is going to go that far. But I think, I think that, the, that the philosophy of, of really getting back in touch with our food is an important one. And if you, you know, don't follow all the recipes and don't make all those, those um, foods that you talk about, at least I think people realize that, you know, cooking is, well, first of all, it's a very soothing activity. It's, yes. not, it's not an unpleasant activity. It's not a difficult activity. Um, it does take time. And admittedly, those of us, you know, coming of age in the late 60s and early 70s, we, we asked for this. I mean, we, you know, it was women getting back into the workplace, and why should homemakers... I, you know? I would disagree with you on that point. Yeah? Okay. I think it was, Go you know, the idea that cooking is a drudgery and that everything else you spend your time on is inherently better is a message that was planted in women's heads by the industry itself. That's you know, true. They, they sold these convenience products and the line was, why would you bake a cake? You know, to use Laura Shapiro's example, when, when you can actually just take this box, add an egg so it makes it feel like you're really cooking, and then, right. and then pour it in the thing when, when in fact, to make a cake from scratch takes absolutely no more effort. It's the exact same process. You just have to have those ingredients sitting around. And I think that the inherent pleasure you get out of it, um, the way Marx would have put it, is that this is sort of an expression of your creative energy, that it goes into the product, and at the end you feel this is yours, and you get a kind of inherent satisfaction from sharing it because you made it. Um, The way that, that a you know, pre-made cake mix, <laughs> you know, sort of pretends that that's the case, is that you're actually, you actually have to mix the stuff and you haven't bought it at a store. But that's a fiction. And I think for most convenience foods, the idea that they save time or somehow, you know, you're, you're too busy to spend a few minutes. Let me give you another perfect example. Okay. To make a hamburger, you know, you buy a thing of chopped meat, and I know the price of our meat is ridiculously low, maybe $1.99 for a pound of ordinary chopped ground beef. Um, that makes um, four modest-sized hamburgers, maybe three, right? But it's what kind of labor does it take? You actually have to press them into patties, put them in a pan, cook them, plop them on a bun. There's no labor involved really at all, and I'd say it takes maybe 10, 15 minutes at most to put together some decent hamburgers. Now, why would they sell them preformed? <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they sell them in a supermarket preformed or even frozen. You can buy frozen hamburgers that are sort of, you know, injected with fla- added flavor and stuff, <laughs> and all you have to do is defrost them, put them on the grill. It's like, what kind of labor does that solve, uh, you know, save? And 
what fun is it ultimately? You know, yeah. cooking in I, a microwave or plopping a, you know, when I was young, they, we had this little chicken a la king in a bag sort of thing. It was the ancestor of sous vide. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> my mother used to boil these things mm, yes. and then pull it out and pour it over white bread. It was dreadful. Dinner's ready, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, honestly, does that save any time? Are you, you know, uh, is this really a convenient food when to chop up a piece of chicken, add a little broth, mix it with some, you know, vegetables? That takes a few minutes more at most, and and it's a lot more fun to do. And I think, ultimately, it's not a surprise that people have found cooking to be an unpleasant chore because it's been made so. (laughs) There's no no creativity. I, I would also blame... I think the the way recipes are written, and this is another oddity about this cookbook. I'm frankly really surprised that the publisher let us get away with this, but it doesn't follow standard recipe format. So there aren't a list of ingredients and exact measures and very precise instructions that say you do this, 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 and this. And that's really a product of, I'd say, the past century of recipe writing has made, has taken on the pretense of being science. And there's a lot of reasons why. It was partly to ennoble um, the activities of women by, by giving them status and, you know, the whole sort of home ec movement in, in schools and, and colleges. And by pretending that it was a science, um, cookbook authors began to give very precise instructions as if you were following a, you know, a lab um, manual. That's <laughs> so right. Of, That's so right. you could get the same results in any household. But what it did is it really took the fun out of cooking, which is to experiment, to be creative, to use the ingredients that are the freshest and best. And if you don't have something that happens to be in the recipe, so what? 99% of the time you can just substitute something else. You know, maybe with the exception of baking, the measurements don't really matter. The cooking times don't matter a lot. And people have begun to stop you know, sort of trusting their own senses and their own experience, and they follow the recipe. My favorite is an example of a person who put a cake in the oven, and it was clearly burning, and the husband asks, why aren't you taking that out of the oven? And she says, well, the, the recipe says bake for one hour, <laughs> not an hour yet. <laughs> like, and I think that's, that's indicative of the kind of de-skilling that has been happening. Right. Well, um, now, obviously, some people are really interested in cooking and know what they're doing in the kitchen, and, but in general... Uh, and this is, you know, supported by, by tons of research, not that I've done, but it's, it's out there, is that the more, ironically, the more interested we are in cooking and the more we watch cooking on TV and read it in magazines and, and idolize star, you know, chefs, um, the less we actually do it. And that's in that right. respect... That's, uh, that, that, would, that's, Ken, that was interesting because that was um, something I actually had wanted to, um, to bring up in the top of the show, is that you say that there is this... And which you've just alluded to this this renewed interest or renaissance, if you will, <laughs> knowing your background in cooking and in food, and yet it doesn't make us cook anymore. That's right. Well, think I, I think the same thing has happened to sports, where people watch you know a superstar on TV and they think, well, that guy can run this fast or throw a football that fast, and I can't do that, and I sort of feel inadequate now. So I'm going to watch the superstar and and enjoy it vicariously through him. And what same about sort of what about pornography? Yeah, also. Right, you know, people right. watch these people perform. <laughs> 
incredible acts, I assume. I don't, I don't know. So from first-hand experience, and then they kind of think of themselves as, you know, so, so the kind of vicarious experience of watching other people, um, in a Freudian sense, I guess you could say, um, sublimates that own desire in us. And the same weird sort of thing is happening in cooking, is the more we watch it, the less we think we know how to do it, the less, and, and you, you can see this on, even on food TV, you know, there's very little instruction there now. It's, it's really all performative. It's mm-hmm. watching this guy do some amazing thing or a cake that's six, you know, six, six feet tall or something like that. And obviously, you're, there's no way anyone's going to try and do that. So it kind of prevents someone from actually learning, hmm, how do I bake a cake? <laughs> right. go, you know, what can I do that's fun? Well, I can't. I'll just use the mix or I'll just buy it. Um, and, you know, let, let me go back to something else you, you mentioned about, about the, you know, sort of changing people's roles. I mean, men do cook more, which is, which is kind of an yes. interesting thing um, than in the past. But I think you said that, you know, in the 60s and 70s, not cooking was seen as something liberating, and it could get you out of the house. Well, I want to know, what is this other thing that people are doing? <laughs> you know, they're working more. You know, they're working, yeah. putting in longer hours. Our incomes have not risen proportionate with the amount of time we spend in the, in, out of the kitchen. And I think it's kind of given us this idea that, that kitchen work is like cleaning. It's just sort of maintenance. You get it done with as quickly as possible. The, the amount of time that people spend in the kitchen, I don't have the exact figures, but it's something like, it was something under an hour for three meals per head of household per um, entire day, whereas it was something like three hours was the average time spent watching TV. So clearly people are watching stuff, food or, or other things, and, and they think somehow, you know, the, ex, the extra time in the kitchen is somehow, oh, it was much less than an hour. An hour was actually what I recommended. <laughs> an hour would be fine if people were spending that. It was something like, like 20-something minutes. Yeah, how long does um, it take to open a box, you know? <laughs> exactly it, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you, you can see this since the turn of the century, really. I mean, a century ago, um, when breakfast cereals started to replace hot breakfasts, you know, you just sort of pour it out of a box. It's convenient. Um, and uh, pre-made mixes and stock cubes and all those kind of industrial things, industrial products that were meant to save time. Ultimately, in the course of just a few generations, we've lost basic skills like how to make a stock, um, how to grind grain to make fresh, hot oatmeal or something like that. Right. Well, I think that they are, are killing our brain cells in terms of thinking. <laughs> we're not thinking anymore. Right. We, we see the food, It's as you say, hamburger patties preformed. we don't even have to think anymore we just we're like automatons we go we buy it plop it in the now not me necessarily we we the general we and plop it on the stove and it's on we've given it no thought we've given it no thought to where did the meat come from where did the vegetables That's come right. from you know what does it taste like you know we don't know what it tastes like we crave the chemicals as you said earlier we're not craving the the real true flavors well we're going to talk more about this and and uh, take another turn on it too when we come back after a short break. Stay with us. Thank you. 
welcome back. We are talking with Ken Albala, food historian, and on the lost art of real cooking, um, or why we don't cook anymore. And Ken, you said you didn't want to make any claims to um, why why we don't cook anymore, or uh, or the the lost art of real cooking as to uh, the the epidemic of obesity and diabetes and things. However, you know, I was thinking when you were saying we only spend so little time in the kitchen, but you know, the more time you spend uh, shopping for food and then cooking the food, you know, it takes time and then you, and then you're waiting for the food. So then you finally sit down and you eat it. Chances are you're going to eat less, but not only that, the society is so into this instant gratification with, with fast foods and, and convenience foods, it's got to have some, some you know, it has a lot to do with, with obesity, I'm sure, even if the, you know, well, they say the evidence with the fast foods and processed foods is certainly there. But I think more activity in the kitchen, hey, you're standing up, you're cooking, you're moving from that's, counter to counter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly so. And I think also it's it's a lot of mindless eating. You know, people... Mm-hmm. It's not not just snacking. I don't. I, you know, if you were snacking on healthy things, that wouldn't be such a big deal. Right. Carrots or something like that. But it's that there's food that is that is designed to be addictive. <laughs> kind of. I mean, who can eat one potato chip? They're absolutely right. That's it's right. kind of this you know pleasure of the crunch and the saltiness and the fat and it's all these things that we're actually evolutionarily um, hardwired to enjoy and appreciate because when you you know have irregular meals. Let's imagine someone who's hunting and gathering. You get a meal every a big meal every couple of days, the idea is you want to maximize calories, you want fat, you want to you know, get as much salt and liquid in you as possible. And those are kind of hardwired things in our brain that the food industry capitalizes on and to sell food in a way that we've come to really not appreciate very simple things anymore. And, and you know, obviously our whole work schedule is different and, um, and the, the way we eat. And I, and I would say also another really important thing is eating together as families, you know, yes, eating with yes. other people, the whole commensality issue. Um, when you sit at a table with someone else, you eat more mindfully. Mm-hmm. Like you think about the food, you think about what goes into it because you want other people to appreciate it. You get the pleasure of them enjoying it. But it's also a time when, you know, sort of, I will admit it's not always pleasant. You know, I eat with my mm-hmm. kids every day. And they Sometimes they fight and it's, you know, it can be, it can be, People bring all their problems to the dinner table because it's the one time you sit together. But I think the kind of um, anomie, you know, it's that kind of alienation that people talk about of modern, the modern age, it's eating alone. You know, it's eating in your house by yourself when there are other people around and you don't eat with them because, oh, I've got this to do, I've got that to do. And, um, and we forget that, that, that eating together, not just in families, but in larger groups, uh, you know, in, in ritual forms and as celebration, those things actually have serve a very important social function. That's right. And, and cooking for other people, I think, is a way that we express our creativity in giving to others. I think that's, that's you know, if you think about it, what do people really want? You know, it's, money is, is just a means to other things. It's so you can buy big Good things food. to impress other people, and that's sort of what capitalist society has told us is important in life. But what we really seek is other people's approval, right? We want right. them to say, you have done a good job. We appreciate what you did for us. And it's kind of like, you know, if you go to someone's house for dinner and 
if someone brings a pre-made cake from the store or a box of yodel, or I don't know what, well, something like that, it basically says to them, I don't really care about what you, <laughs> and my time is more important, and I'm just going to give you this crap because you don't know the difference anyway. Mm-hmm. It says something very different than if someone takes the time to make something themselves, brings it, and says, here is my creative energy. I put this into this dish, and, I, and it's intended for your benefit. And it's a very interesting kind of exchange that goes on there. So it's sort of like, imagine if you went to a potluck. You're bringing food that you made, you're tr- and you're sharing it with other people. They're trusting you. It's, mm-hmm. it's an exchange that says, I know you're not going to poison me. I'm going to trust that this is actually good. And that it's kind of um, a level of understanding that goes way beyond what we normally think of as exchange in, in capitalist terms. It's, it's a way of, of sharing communally um, our creative energy that's in a way right. that we just don't get in many other forms. Yeah, that's that's excellent, and ex- the potluck is an excellent example. Now, you know, you made some mention um, one time about nutrition education and that it doesn't really work. Can you speak to that a little bit? <laughs> well, um, I have this idea, and I'm I'm not sure people will agree with my ultimate solution for it. But I think, you know, we have ed- nutrition education in schools. Michelle Obama is doing a great job with the, the White House Garden. We have, um, you know, nutrition information on the side of packages now. And even fast food restaurants have to publish their calories and their fat and all that stuff um, in many places. And, and I think that's, that's a perfectly good thing. But people ignore it in general. The vast majority of people listen to that stuff and they say, yeah, 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 who cares? And they don't want to be told what to do. <laughs> and they don't yeah. want to be told, you know, you should eat this and eat that. And I think the reason ultimately that people don't eat well on the whole is because, A, the stuff is there. It tastes good. It's cheap. And our government subsidizes it, right? I mean, they, they put money into corn and soy and all those things and corn and soy and wheat and things that go into very highly processed food. And therefore, it's cheap, right? right. And, and our tax money ultimately is going to pay to, to make that junk food to feed us, right? right? Now, what would happen if the government said, okay, we're going to stop subsidizing. We, we really are going to take this nutrition stuff and, seriously. And instead of subsidizing corn, we're going to subsidize fruits and vegetables so that the price of those comes down dramatically. So you can buy an eggplant, not for three ninety nine a piece, but for 50 cents for an eggplant. And then the price of beef goes up to say, you know, it's now going to cost 3 or $4 a pound. What would happen? Of course, people are going to eat more eggplants and less beef. It's just, you know, some people suggest a, a, a tax on junk food. And that, you know, ultimately, I think people are just going to buy it anyway, and they're right. going to pay more money. And it's like cigarettes, you know, it's, it doesn't stop people from smoking. It, it, it generally just um, puts more money in the pockets of government. Right. But if you really want to change the way people eat, just change the types of things we subsidize, change the, the overall policy. And yes, I know farm states are going to be really up in arms, and they're going to, you know, farmers are going to be hurt. But what, if, what will they do? What will all those big corn farmers now do in the, throughout the Midwest? They'll start growing vegetables. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can switch right. just, as, just as easily as anyone, you know. Well, you and I think... Go ahead, Dan. I was just to say, you also, um, in I think it was in the TED lecture you alluded to, um, it, you know, and a lot of us, and I had somebody talking about the history of markets on last week, um, Gergo Bayich, and, and mentioned the same thing throughout history, uh, 200 years ago, in that the poor neighborhoods have fewer places where there are 
quality and affordable ingredients available. Grocery well, stores another, yeah, don't exist. Absolutely another way I think the government should play a role. They have what, what are called uh, food deserts. Um, and in fact, if you go downtown in Stockton, if you head toward the center of the city, there are no supermarkets. Uh, the ones that are on the periphery, the food co- actually costs more than in the more affluent neighborhoods on the periphery, which is bizarre, absolutely bizarre. But what would, what would and, and you can understand why supermarkets don't go in there. You know, it's, they, it's hard getting a large enough space. Um, there aren't as many cust- affluent customers and, you know, to sell things to. But what if the government just said, okay, we will subsidize a supermarket to be put downtown that will encourage people to actually live there. It'll it'll prevent the flight that happens from the center of cities. And you know, there's uh, Stockton is a very good example of a city that's spending a lot of money on trying to revitalize the downtown. There's a new uh, baseball field and hotels and all this stuff. No one goes down there, you know, because no one lives there, and mm. they still have this impression that well, it's not really a safe place to be at night and blah blah blah. If people actually lived there and there were houses and a supermarket, and it would just just be as simple as saying government's putting money into this, we're, we're planting a supermarket there. That's, That's right. Hmm. Well, let's, let's talk um, a little bit more before we um, end up about the book and your input. And I, I know I also follow you on Facebook, so I see, ah. <laughs> the, I see things that you're cooking from time to time and you're making your own bread, baking your own bread. No, we're not all going to spend that much time in the kitchen. Obviously, there sometimes we are limited about you know how much time we have to go to the grocery store. We get off work, the grocery stores are closed. We come home, we're not going to cook that much. But you have spent a lot of time researching some of these old techniques and these old recipes. Sure. Uh, which, baking. Yeah, and baking in particular. Um, but as far as um, preserving, I think that there was a wonderful section with you and I think Rosanna, uh, Rosanna did a lot of that too, is on preserving foods. And this is something I think what I'm seeing with younger, a lot of younger people, is a renewed interest in buying fresh foods, the green markets, and And pickling and and preserving and fermenting their own foods. These are, for the most part, processes that do themselves. Um, They don't take a lot of time. um, They take time sitting on the shelf to ferment or to let the bread rise or to maintain a starter. But they're not really labor-intensive things, not like sort of making ravioli or cooking something, you know, that's really difficult and labor-intensive. They're... um, they're just things that sort of become the rhythm of your life. And mm-hmm. I would say every, I bake every week, you know, I make one big bread that lasts me through the week. I cure salami and hams and things like that, bacon sometimes, maybe once a month. Um, I do larger projects like making cheeses every, every three months or so. And it's really not a lot of time. And it's, and it's things I do on the weekend. You know, if I have a couple of hours extra, um, you know, I can make a batch of five pounds of salami and that'll last me for the next several months. So it's, I don't, I wouldn't say, that it's that it's an like a you know an after work kind of commitment to spending a lot of time. It's really just a, a leisurely activity, and it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that you make at home almost always tastes better. It's it's uh, always cheaper. I think it doesn't have all the junk that you put that you get when you buy it. You know, industrially made. And for the most part, these are processes that do themselves. Fermentation is a great example. Chop up cabbage, throw it in a, in a jar, and salt it. It's sauerkraut in, in a right. couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> The same with wine. You know, you crush grapes, you leave them there after two weeks, it's wine. You know, there's nothing, nothing um, inherently difficult. And, and the other thing is I don't have any equipment for any of this stuff. I just do it all by hand. I use no machines. Um, I've been trying uh, really hard not even to use electricity in most of this stuff to, to get a sense of how it would have been done traditionally. And um, 
vast majority of things work. Um, the, the sequel to this cookbook, which will be called The Lost Arts of Hearth and Home, has a few more things in it, even apart from cooking, like I make brooms and things like that. But, um, but the vast majority of things just worked. I followed old instructions, you know, had to, uh, had to sort of guess on certain procedures, but, but it's really just things that people don't think they can do at home. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and, and then back, just, back, to, back to the old way of writing recipes, too, that you, that's that exactly using it. your intuitive senses of how, how to make things work and how it, you know, how it should look like. And headnotes that are missing these days in cookbooks, and like, well, stir it until it looks like scrambled eggs. You know, it, that's right. You got, you've got that's a, right. Someone and has to tell us what we're supposed to that, see, right? Yeah, people think also that, uh, you know, you can get any recipe online. Well, the recipes online are terrible. Mm-hmm. You, know, there's, mm-hmm. you know, you look up lasagna, there's 8 million of them. How do you find the one that's good? That's right. And I think it's much more important to just have a basic procedure. You don't need a recipe to make lasagna. You know, you just rolling out fresh noodles is simple. Making a tomato sauce from tomatoes is absolute simplicity. So, you know, even making ricotta is, is just a, a really, really easy thing you do as a byproduct of cheese making. Um, not a lot of time input, and the taste is infinitely superior. Um, well, you have become a, a a real prophet for those of us <laughs> following the return return to the kitchen movement, and um, and I I really like so much of the things that you have in this book. It's a sweet little book and uh, very informative as well. And again, it's called the Lost Art of Real Cooking. That and many other books. We look forward to the sequel, and we look forward to hearing more from you, Ken. Thank you so much for joining me today on a Thanks taste for of the Pest. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.